Praise the Lord. Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me to the book of Psalms. And today we're going to be in Psalm 92, and we're going to look at all 15 verses. Psalm 92, we'll start in a moment there in verse 1, and the words will be on the screen as well. A few years ago, there was a man in South Africa who got home real late at night. It was around 2 a.m., and he discovered that nine men were in the process of robbing his home. Now, when they saw him, eight of the nine men immediately fled. But there was this one guy who, in the process of fleeing, actually fell into the deep end of the swimming pool. And he couldn't swim. So all of a sudden, the homeowner had a decision to make what to do. Well, not wanting this man to drown, he decided to do the right thing. So he dove into the water and he heroically saved the life of the man who just moments earlier was stealing from him. He pulled him out of the water. What did the man do? How did he respond? Did he thank the man who just saved his life? No. He pulled out a knife and would have attacked him, but the homeowner just pushed him back in the pool. (laughs) Fortunately, the police showed up right about that time and arrested him, and everyone got out alive. It should not surprise us that gratitude does not come naturally to this world. None of us are born grateful. That is a lesson that every mom and dad learn when that first little one arrives We have to teach gratitude. Thankfulness is something that has to be learned. This morning, we are going to look at a psalm that aims to teach us that very lesson. And as we're going to see in the very first verse, this psalm is all about motivating the people of God to give thanks to God in every season of life, in the good times and in the bad, in the hills and in the valleys. It's interesting, there are technically no imperatives at all in Psalm 92. There's not a single command. The focus of this psalm is to remind us of certain truths about God Because if we know these things, and if we believe these things, gratitude will be the result. By the way, out of 150 psalms, this is the only psalm which was assigned a specific day of the week. You'll notice that small note before verse 1 that says, A song for the Sabbath. This song was to be sung, not individually, but by the people of God together on the Lord's day. And we're going to see four themes in this psalm, four reasons why the redeemed can and must give thanks to God. First of all, because of the goodness of God's character. Because of the goodness of God's character. Look at verse 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, 
O Most High. Notice we are to give thanks. We are to sing praises. The two go together. But it is good to give thanks. It is good. It's not a burden. It is not a chore. It is good. How is it good? Well, it's good for you. It's good for your health. It's good for your witness. It's good for your emotional and your spiritual well-being. It's good because it builds your faith. It's good because it'll strengthen your marriage. But most of all, above all of that, it is good because of God's character. It is the most appropriate thing that we can do in light of who God is. In verse 1, he uses that covenant name for God. He's Yahweh. He's the I am, the self-existent one, the one who always has been, the one who always will be. And furthermore, it is good because the Lord himself is good. His promises are good. His gifts are good. And his character is good. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see what? That the Lord is good. Look at verse 2. To declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night. Verse 2 continues the idea in verse 1. It is good to give thanks, but how exactly do we do that? Here's one way we do that. The psalmist said, by making a declaration. Verse 2 says that we are to declare two things. We are to declare God's loving kindness and God's faithfulness. That word loving kindness in the Hebrew, you've heard me talk about it, the word hesed, the most beautiful word in the Old Testament. Also, one of the deepest and the richest words. It's so deep, it's really hard to translate it with just one word in English. Sometimes it means love or loving kindness. It can mean faithful love. It can mean mercy, sometimes tender mercies. That word faithfulness, we declare God's faithfulness. It comes from the Hebrew word for truth. In other words, God is true to his word. He's the God who keeps his promises, and he always does what he says he will do. And so we are to declare God's loving kindness, and his faithfulness. But I want you to notice the timing. We declare God's loving kindness when? In the morning. Let me ask you a question. What do you do? The first thing, and I mean the very first thing when you wake up in the morning. Do you do like some people and grab your cell phone so you can go online and find out what everybody in the world is mad about today? Because every day, everybody is mad about something. Well, the psalmist gives us a better idea. Start your day, it says, by declaring God's loving kindness. Because you don't know what the day might bring. You don't know what challenges may come, or there might be attacks that you just don't expect. But when you declare God's loving kindness in the morning, you are reminding yourself in advance, before the very first trial comes your way, you're reminding yourself that no matter what happens, good or bad, God's hesed 
His love is a settled issue. When you declare God's loving kindness in the morning, that means you get up and you say, God, I don't know what today has in store, but I declare that whatever comes my way, God loves me, and he is good. As followers of Christ, no one should know that better than we do because God proved his love for us once and for all when he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins and for mine. And that is why on any given day, even on the worst of days, God's love can never be questioned. It can never be in doubt. Later on, when the sun goes down, when it's time to sleep, what do we do? The psalmist says, we declare God's faithfulness when? In the evening. You declare God's faithfulness in the evening because when you look back on your day and all of the things that happened and all the things that people said and whatever somebody did to you, when you look back and you review your day, you can know no matter what happened, good or bad, God was at work. And he was and he is faithful every second of every minute of every hour of that day. And so we declare God's loving kindness in the morning. We declare his faithfulness in the evening. And then in verse 3, we are to do this on an instrument of ten strings, on the lute and on the harp with harmonious sound. Now, if you've read Psalms, you know these are just a few of the many instruments that are mentioned with which we are to praise the Lord. But the point is a true knowledge of God will produce gratitude, and that will lead us and motivate us to praise him and worship him with everything we have at our disposal. It reminds me of a story of an elderly lady in a church who had a prayer that she would repeat quite often, even when she was asked to pray publicly. And it was a very simple prayer. It was a very short prayer. She was fond of praying Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. In fact, she prayed that prayer so often, some of the little kids would even tease her. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. And one day someone asked her, why is it that you pray that prayer so often? And she explained and said, I live in a dangerous neighborhood. And sometimes we hear gunshots at night. And I gather my family around me and I say, Oh, Lord. But then when the sun comes up and everyone's healthy and everyone's safe, you know what I say? Thank you, Jesus. She said, I dropped my little girl off at the bus station, and I know when she heads off to school that any number of things could happen. And you know what I say? Oh, Lord. But then at 3 o'clock, she gets back home from school, and she is safe and all is well, and I say, thank you, Jesus. Do you know what she was doing That elderly lady, in her own special way, she was declaring God's loving kindness in the morning, and she was declaring God's faithfulness in the evening. And just like her, we can give thanks because of the goodness of God's character. But we can also give thanks because of the sovereignty of God's ways. The sovereignty of God's ways. God is sovereign, that just means God is in control, 
In fact, God is in control of every part of our lives. He's in control of every atom in this universe. Look at verse 4. For you, Lord, have made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the works of your hands. Now notice the word work followed by the word works in verse 4. That word work, it appears numerous times in the Psalms. It's a key word. And almost always when we see it, it's referring to one of two things. The work of God's creation or the work of God's salvation. Now, in this case, Psalm 92, with the people of God singing together on the Lord's Day, almost certainly they had in mind the work of God's salvation when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land. But notice it also says, I will triumph in the works of your hand. This refers to everything that God has done on our behalf. And he said, I'm going to triumph in those works. That word can also translate to brag or to boast. That is the word that was used oftentimes of soldiers who were glorying after they had won some great important battle. But in this case, it is not the works of our hands in which we glory. It is the works of his hands that make us glad and cause us to give thanks. That means if you have accomplished anything great, if you've done something good, it is the works of his hands, not yours. God gave you the strength, God gave you the opportunity, and God gave you the grace. And a very good part of us giving thanks to God is giving him the credit for the works of his hands that are produced in us and around us. Look at verse 5. Oh Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. Now verse 5 mentions two things that the believer can somewhat comprehend. But the natural man cannot remotely comprehend. No matter how hard he tries, he cannot understand the mind of God or the works of God. He cannot understand what God thinks or what God is doing. And that's why in verse 6 he says, a senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. When the wicked spring up like grass, and when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. That word senseless there in verse 6, a senseless man does not know, often describes an animal that is not even capable of thinking of God that would not think of giving God thanks. Now, there's nothing wrong with that in an animal. I have a dog, my love dearly. I've never once seen him stop and give thanks after I have fed him. It's not a tragedy when an animal thinks this way, but it is a great tragedy when a man or a woman thinks this way. This is the man or woman 
who doesn't even acknowledge God, who lives their life as if God does not exist. Verse 7 says that it may look like that person is flourishing for a time, but are they grateful? No. He says they're like the grass, which is here today and gone tomorrow. They put all their eggs in the basket of this earthly life. They have made what someone called a tragic miscalculation of time. They've forgotten that life is short and eternity is long. It's forever. That's why verse 7 says, the workers of iniquity. By the way, that's all of us apart from salvation in Christ. For all have sinned. The workers of iniquity will be destroyed forever. I don't think you'll find two more tragic words in all of the word of God. Destroyed forever, describing the man or woman who would enter a Christless eternity in a devil's hell. Danny Aiken said about this statement, their destruction is inevitable, but it is not necessary. It's not necessary because of everything Jesus has done to save whosoever will call upon his name. But the lost person cannot know, cannot understand God's thoughts or God's ways. The concept that God is at work in my life, the idea that what God is doing in my life right now is somehow connected to all the stuff God was doing thousands of years ago, and is somehow connected to all of the stuff God will be doing thousands of years from now, that is a completely foreign concept to the lost person. They can't even begin to conceive it. Now, that doesn't mean that the unsaved person will never say the words, thank you. That doesn't mean that they will never have a single grateful thought. But the man or woman who does not know God or allow him into the picture of their lives, cannot even conceive of thanking God in this way on this level. I believe the follower of Christ should be the most grateful person in this world. And you know, the psalmist tells us why. He says, we should be thankful in verses 5 and 6 and 7. We should be thankful because we know something. The world doesn't know. We should be thankful because we know behind all the chaos, behind all the pain, behind every tragedy that we go through, there is a sovereign God who is at work and we know that he will cause all of these things to work together for the good of those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. And that should motivate us to give thanks. Think for a moment about the most difficult trial you've ever experienced in life. Think for a moment about your greatest defeat, your greatest loss. Do you know what you would do in that moment if you could see everything God was doing in the background? Do you know what you would do if you could see the whole picture, how God is going to take that trial or that tragedy and how he is going to use it for your good and for his glory? Do you realize what you would do in that moment of difficulty if, like God, you could see 
The end from the beginning. What would you do? I'll tell you what you would do. You would erupt in thanksgiving and praise to God. That's what you would do. And if we really believe that God is sovereign, that is what we should do in every trial of life. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can give thanks to God because of the sovereignty of his ways. But there's another reason why we can and we should give thanks. We can give thanks because of the triumph of God's justice. Look at verse 8. But you, Lord, are on high forevermore. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. Verse 8 says, O Lord, you are on high. You say, well, what does that mean? That means that there's no one above you. There's no one, God, who has any authority over you. And yet, in spite of that, we see in the very next verse, sinful mankind continues to rebel against God and war against his creator. Notice that the psalmist is equating in verse 9 God's enemies, and he says it twice, your enemies, your enemies, with those who are workers of iniquity. That's another way of saying sinners who just refuse to repent. Verse 9 says, they will be scattered. They shall perish. But what about the child of God? Look at verse 10. But my horn you have exalted like a wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil. Notice those two statements. The horn, in ancient days, referred to someone's strength. For a wild ox, its horn was what made them dangerous. And you didn't want to be anywhere near a wild ox because it just might rip you apart. So in verse 10, when it says that God exalts our horn like the ox, what does that mean? Well, that doesn't mean that we're violent like the ox. No, that means that God causes us to triumph even against great opposition. That means in Christ, we are unstoppable. That means that the child of God who is in the will of God is invincible. That means that there's nothing that the world can do to them in order to stop what God wants to do through him in order to fulfill his purposes. And then verse 10 says, I have been anointed with fresh Oil. It reminds us of the 23rd Psalm, you anoint my head with oil. We know that in Bible days, this was something you did for royalty. It was common when you would see a king to greet them in this way. And yet the psalmist writes this song, and remember, it is to be sung by the entire people of God on the Lord's day. We are to sing, you anoint us with oil. It's like we're saying, God, we don't know why, but for some reason, this is what you do 
for me. And this is why the psalmist can say in verse 11, my eye also has seen my desire on my enemies. My ears hear my desire on the wicked who rise up against me. Now, literally, literally, verse 11 says, my eyes see on my enemies. My ears hear on the wicked who rise up against me. In other words, he sees how God deals with them. I don't believe he's saying he sees it physically or literally. He's not saying he's already seen it. He's looking into the future. He's seeing with the eyes of faith. He looks around him and says, well, it looks like evil is prevailing. It looks like when I read the headlines that evildoers are winning, but he does not have to wonder whether or not God's justice will prevail. He can give thanks because he looks into the future by faith and he knows that one day God is going to settle all accounts and God will make all things right. And notice how he phrased this. He said, we see what happens to our enemies. We hear what happens to our enemies. But we're not the ones who do it to our enemies In other words, we are not the one who fights our enemies. God is the one. He fights our battles. We're just spectators, and it's our job simply to trust him. And we can indeed give thanks because of the triumph of God's justice. But there's one more thing that the psalmist tells us for which we can give thanks, and it's something that Honestly, we don't think about a whole lot when it comes to thanksgiving. We can give thanks because of the growth of God's people. The growth of God's people. In these last few verses, the psalmist describes how God is at work in the lives of the redeemed, what God is doing in their lives, what God is trying to produce in their lives. Look at verse 12. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Now, you remember earlier, the wicked were compared to grass. This time, the righteous are compared to a tree. And he mentions two kinds of trees that we are to be like, two types of trees uh, which describe what God is doing in our lives. He says, well, first of all, the righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. Why is that? We know a thing or two about palm trees here in South Florida, don't we? I think so. You ever gone outside, looked at a palm tree, and thought, you know, there's a spiritual lesson there for me. I'm supposed to be like that tree. Have you ever thought about that? That's what the Bible says. In what sense are we to be like that palm tree? Well, I can tell you a few things. I can tell you that they can weather many storms. I still remember after Hurricane Irma driving around and seeing fruit trees on the ground and oak trees on the ground. But you know those palm trees? It was just business as usual. I can tell you about palm trees that they can grow in places where the soil is very shallow, where it might be difficult for other trees to grow. 
They can grow in places where there are few nutrients. About five years ago, I took a trip to the desert, and I still remember what I saw everywhere. You know what I saw in the desert? I saw palm trees. Lots and lots of palm trees. The palm tree also provides shade for the weary traveler. It shows them where they can find water when they're thirsty. That palm tree says to that desert traveler, here, right here, there is water. Psalmist also compared the righteous to the cedar of Lebanon. The cedar of Lebanon was the tallest tree in the world, or in their, that part of the world during those days. It was called the king of trees. It would get up to about 120 feet tall. That would be like us referring to the California redwoods, the tallest trees in the world. It stood above all others. You put these two images together, and what a picture of what the Bible says our lives are meant to be. That we are to be like that palm tree, like that cedar in Lebanon. And everything, and I mean everything, that God is doing in your life right now, he is doing to make you like these two things. To make you like that palm tree and that cedar of Lebanon. And that's why, no matter what it is, good or bad, yes, you can give thanks. Look at verse 13. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. Notice the progression here. They start off young when they're planted in the house of the Lord. He's not talking about a literal house. He's not talking about a building. Here, the house of the Lord refers to God's presence This person, by faith, is planted in the presence of God, and as they remain in God's presence and continually experience God's presence, what happens? They begin to flourish. The Bible says they produce fruit. And then finally, in verse 14, even in old age, they keep on bearing fruit. With each passing year, I just like that verse more and more and more. This is what I want to be said of me in my old age, that he didn't just bear fruit when he was young, but he bore fruit when he was old. And this doesn't mean that every godly person is going to live a long life, but I'll tell you what it does mean. It does mean that the godly get stronger as they get older. The godly get stronger as they get older. This is like the Old Testament version Philippians 1.6, when Paul said, he who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Listen, Christian brother, Christian sister, God will finish what he started in you. Psalm 92, as we saw, it began with a declaration. It ends with a declaration. Notice verse 15, to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Psalmist said, here's how I'm going to give thanks, by declaring this, that the one who is upright, in other words, he is holy, he is perfect, he is pure. The one in whom there is no unrighteousness, in other words, there is no sin, there can be no sin in his 
presence. He said, I'm going to declare him. And yes, he's the one who came from heaven to earth and lived a perfect, sinless life. And he died on a cruel cross. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Because he died on that cross, because he rose again, that's why we can say, just like that psalmist, in verse 15, he is my rock. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is what? Sinking sand. I read a story about a medical missionary to India years ago. And he's retired now, but this man, just like our adopted missionary Jennifer, he used medicine in order to share the love of Christ in India. He was working with a particular people group that spoke a kind of rare language. As he was learning the language of that people group that he would be ministering to, he discovered that they had a rather peculiar way of saying thank you. Technically, they didn't have anything that literally directly translated thank you in their language, but they did have a way of kind of conveying the idea. When someone blessed them and they wanted to speak and express their gratitude, this is what they would say. I will tell your name. I will tell your name. I will tell your name. That's an interesting way of saying thank you, isn't it? But when they said, I will tell your name by telling others that person's name and what that person had done, they were both honoring them and they were demonstrating thankfulness. Folks, I can't think of a greater way to give thanks to God than by telling his name, by declaring the name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, making sure that that name is famous all over this world, that everyone knows that he is the one who came from heaven to earth, was born of a virgin, he lived a perfect sinless life so that he could exchange his innocence for our guilt when he died on that cross. He took the death that we deserved so that we could experience the glory and the life that he deserves. And he did this so that whosoever shall believe upon him shall not perish but have everlasting life. If you want to Thank God. And I mean really thank God with your life. Tell the name of the one who died for you and who rose again. Tell it to everyone who needs to hear. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, you have given us indeed so many reasons to give thanks. And this morning, in this psalm, we've seen just a few of them. But we do thank you, dear God, for your character, for who you are, the fact that you're good, 
that you love us, you're faithful. We thank you for the fact that, yes, you are sovereign. You are in control. Your justice will, in fact, prevail. And you are at work in our lives to cause us to be like that tree that is planted and bears fruit and flourishes even in its old age. And that you will finish what you have begun in us. And we thank you, oh Lord, for the gospel. We thank you for sending Jesus. And we know that more than likely, in a crowd of this size, and those that are watching online as well, there are some here today who need to accept that gift. Your word says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God, maybe there's some here today who have never come to that point of freely accepting that gift that you have offered to them through Jesus Christ who died and who rose again. And God, how I pray in these next moments, maybe for that man or woman or boy and girl, this would be that moment that they cry out to you. This would be that moment that they cry out to Jesus and say, you died for me, you rose again, I trust you, I'll follow you, I give you my heart and my life. All that I am and all that I have is yours. Father, I pray that you would show each of us how we need to respond to your word in these next few moments. And Father, as we, in a few moments, will observe the Lord's Supper, I pray, God, that you would show us how to examine ourselves if there's sin that we need to confess, if there's repentance that needs to take place. Would you please, God, reveal that to us in these moments so that we can participate and celebrate in a manner that is worthy. We cannot be worthy, but we can participate and do this in a manner that is worthy. So speak to us as only you can. Speak through that still, small voice. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. With people still praying, heads bowed and and with eyes closed, we're going to take a moment and uh, the pianist will play. And The Bible does say that we are to examine ourselves before we observe the Lord's Supper. And so uh, I want to ask you to do a couple of things. First of all, in the silence of your own heart right now, Uh, Christian brother, Christian sister, would you just ask, Lord, is there anything in my life that I just need to confess before you? Any unconfessed sin, any area of repentance? And as God reveals that, would you just take these next few moments and and just uh, give that over to him, believing that what God's word says is true. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And while people are praying, doing business with God, maybe you're here this morning and there's never been that moment of surrender in your life where you truly called upon Jesus as Lord. Where you truly said, Jesus, you lead, I'll follow. You died for me, you rose again. All that I am, all that I have right now is yours. If you're here this morning and you need to take that step, I want to encourage you, do it now. Don't wait another moment. Even now, call upon Him. Make that your prayer. And not only that, but don't leave here today without letting us know. Say, that's me. I'm taking that step. Today, I'm going to follow Christ. As God's people are praying, you take these next moments, whatever God's put on your heart. And after we've had a moment to pray individually, uh, we'll read the scriptures and we'll sing and we'll partake of the bread and the cup. As God's people are praying right now, However he leads you, respond.